All right, well, good morning. Open up in your Bible to 1 Timothy. We are in the study that's working our way through the book of 1 Timothy. As you're turning there, I had the privilege of getting away the last couple days. My wife kind of surprised me a month ago or so and, and said, hey, get away, spend a day reading and writing. And I am uh, uh, such a nerd that that is exciting to me. And so I grabbed a suitcase of books and I went away to this place that Ashley had set up for me. And uh, it was great. A lot of time of reading and reflection and writing and prayer. And um, one of the things I did was uh, totally unplanned, but I, I happened to bring along with me the book, you've probably heard of it, called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. If you're not familiar with the book, uh, it's, a, it's a fiction uh, that, that is the correspondence of two demons. The, the senior demon, called Screwtape, writes to this junior demon named Wormwood, and the whole book is him writing these letters to this demon about how to thwart this new Christian, how to confuse him, how to mess him up, how to distract him, anything to get this new Christian off the track. And it's, it's fascinating. C.S. Lewis's brilliant mind brings up so many ways that we wouldn't even think that the, the enemy might be working against us. But as I, as I was reading that, it brought me to the text that we've been looking at for the last week, last couple weeks. This idea that there are demonic forces at work against the church. That they hate us, they hate God, they hate the gospel, they hate the church, and they will do all they can to try to destroy the church in whatever way they can. And as I thought about screw tape writing to the, the demon, trying to think about ways to thwart the church, I couldn't help but be thinking about how Satan tries to mess us up. It became kind of personal. And as we looked, if you were here last week, you see that the greatest threat to the church is not political upheaval that is happening out there or oppression or persecution or pressure that begins to take place on the church, but it is error that it gets into the church, that infiltrates the church and begins to grab the minds of the people in the church and to pull them away from the truth, the untarnished, revealed truth of God that we find in Scripture. I wonder what you would think if you were given the task to deceive the church. If you were to put yourself into the, the screw tape letters and if you were that demon trying to figure out what's the best way to bring this church down? What's the best way to distract them? What's the best way to get them off track and off target? What kind of error would you introduce? You might think of something about uh, Christ, right? We're going to abuse the, 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 the person of Christ. We're going to distort Him. And people have done that throughout church history. The heretics who have said either that Christ is only God but wasn't really a man or that He is only a man and He's not really God. That's happened. You could attack the nature of God. What's He like and what He has done in the world and His Word, of course. You could attack the truthfulness of the Scriptures. You could, of course, uh, you could attack the cross. You could try to introduce error, what the cross accomplished or what it means. 
What's interesting is in the text that we're about to look at, we're told that demons are behind the false teaching that's infiltrating the church. But it's none of those things that are are the problem. It's not Christ. It's not the Scriptures necessarily. It's not the cross. It's creation. It's a weird view of creation that has infiltrated the church and begins to mislead the people. And I'm going to read this, and I, I think this might be very helpful for many of us. Of course it's going to be helpful. It's the Word of God. But I think some of us might tend to struggle in ways that this text will actually speak to our situation and give us guidance for how we are to live in the world that is a physical, created world that God has made for us. Let's read the text. Let's read chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, and we'll dive right in. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the Word of God and prayer. Just by way of review, last week we were looking at the first two verses. We saw that the Spirit expressly says, this is what Paul is writing to Timothy, that this is a certainty that in later times, and we looked at that phrase in the New Testament, is referring to the church age. It is the age after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Later times, or the last hour, or the end times, we're in them. And he's saying that the the certainty that we can all expect is that in the church, in the later times, there are going to be people who depart. Uh, That word in Greek is apostasize. It is to become an apostate, someone who's falling away, moving away from the truth. It is not someone who uh, doesn't know what they believe. It's not someone who is just an unbeliever. It's not someone who's struggling with certain doctrines. The word is referring to someone who at one point professed to believe the gospel, professed it to be true, even lived their life among the church as a believer for a time. And when the, the times got hard or whatever something happened, they eventually drifted away from the faith. And Paul goes on to say that this isn't just a a mere coincidence that this happens. This is the defining characteristic of the church age. We know the end is near, John says in 1 John chapter 2, because many antichrists have come and they're in the church. That's how we know it's the last hour. That's what he says. The defining mark of the church age from until Jesus returns is people who are like, like tares among the wheat. They look like they're part of the church. They can even act like they're part of the church. They can talk like they're part of the church. And at some point, they abandoned the church because it was never fully embraced. The truth of the gospel was never fully embraced. He's saying that this happens as a defining mark of this age because there are deceitful spirits. There are teachings of demons. Demons are afoot. In the church, Paul says to Timothy, making sure he's aware of this, that what you're up against, when you're up against false teaching, is not mere false teaching. The person who's spewing lies about the person and work of Christ, or about the nature of God, or about the nature of Scripture, is not a mere person. I mean, there's more than meets the eye. 
They're energized because they're purveying demonic teaching that's from hell that is intending to damn the people who believe it. And so demons are involved, and Paul wants Timothy to know, hey, Timothy, you're up against something that's bigger than you can bear. I imagine Timothy, upon reading this, got on his knees and asked God for help because the forces against the church were beyond and are beyond anything we as mere mortals can handle. And so this is the error that's pervading the church. It's, Paul needs to address it. We see that in our age, errors are just multiplying exponentially. They're becoming more subversive, more insidious, harder to spot, harder to identify. And they're being taught by people who present themselves as teachers of the Word of God. Their consciences are seared, verse 2 says. They're insincere and they lie, but they are saying, or at least claiming, to be teachers of God's Word. So that was last week. That was the reality that, that Paul had to bring up to his men, or the person he was training, Timothy. He had to bring this up to make sure Timothy knew it. And now we get to the section where Timothy begins to be taught how to address the issue. Paul wants to help Timothy identify the error, correct the error, and then even shape his ministry so as to prevent the error from ever happening. That's what's going to happen from verses 6 to 16. Hey, Timothy, you got to do this. But before he gets directly to speak to Timothy and how Timothy's supposed to respond to this, he's going to expose the error and he's going to correct the error. And those are the two big main points is this. It's Paul identifies the error, and then he's going to correct the error with sound doctrine. And under both of those points, there's going to be three sub-points. So if you are a note-taking type, you can say kind of the big first point is identifying the error. The second big point is correcting the error. And underneath, we're going to see some sub-points there. So let's first, let's look at how he identifies the error. Look at with me at verse 3. What are these false teachers doing? What are they teaching? Verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The church in Ephesus where Timothy is serving, someone gets in a relationship and they start talking marriage. Hey, we're thinking about getting married and you can almost imagine the scenario here that the leaders of the church go, oh, you want to get married? Really? I thought you wanted to serve the Lord. <laughs> I thought you were committed to God. I thought you wanted to, to pursue Him with all your might. You know, marriage is just going to be a distraction. If you really want to serve God, you're not going to get married. Foods were being, uh, certain foods were, were requiring them to not eat. Requiring abstinence from certain foods that God required or received, gave to be received with thanksgiving. I want to show you something. You see, as we were thinking about at the beginning, if you're a demon trying to mess up the church, you know, a demon will take any opportunity they get. They'll walk in the front door if it's unlocked and left open. They'll, they'll walk in, they'll, they'll pick any, you know, character of Christ. They'll, they'll go right to the, the center of what we believe if they can. But if they can't get there, if they can't get something right there that's up front and center, right in the middle of what we believe, the core truths, they're, they're not ashamed to walk in the back door to slide in through any cracked open window. They'll do anything to try to get false teaching in because false teaching eventually will work its way back 
to undermine God and the gospel. That's what they're doing here. The error isn't directly about the finished work on the cross. It's not directly about the character of God, or at least on the surface it's not. But I want to show you that when you understand what's going on behind their forbidding of marriage and their forbidding of certain foods, that this very much becomes a gospel issue. It's important to note this, that the gospel and those who are going against it don't ever try to kill the message by just outrightly saying it's wrong. In other words, demons aren't always so obvious as if they want to say, hey, we believe this, and the demons want to come in and say, and get their false teachers to say, no, that's not true, there's something else that's true. They're, they're more subtle than that. In fact, they would rather bury the gospel, obscure the gospel, distract from the gospel, add to the gospel, rather than just deny the gospel. Does that make sense? The, the whole letter of Timothy is being, is being given from Paul. It, the, the, the primary issue that Paul has to again and again and again address is not that they're necessarily outrightly denying the gospel, it's that they're burying it in all these unnecessary and distracting things. Chapter 1, verse 4, hey, don't devote yourselves to myths and endless genealogies. They, they promote speculation, not truth. Chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about vain discussions. Vain discussions are an enemy of the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 7, we're going to see this in a little bit, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Chapter 6, verse 14, listen to this. Chapter 6, verse 14, Timothy's directive from Paul, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. See, see, the problem isn't always outright denial of the truth. Sometimes the problem is the truth gets buried like a diamond getting slung with mud again and again. Suddenly, and over time, you can't see the, the beauty of it anymore. It's getting obscured. And this is what happens in, the, in churches all across the world. And it was happening in Paul's day with Timothy. Is that these discussions, these genealogies, these myths, these added commandments and added restrictions were undercutting the gospel, getting in the way of understanding the gospel, obscuring the gospel. I want you to notice that in this particular instance, the gospel isn't being denied necessarily. It's being added to. In other words, there's no evidence that they're actually changing the fundamental doctrines of Christ, His work, and redemption. The evidence, according to what is being said right there, is that they're adding more restrictions to it. Do you see that? They're adding restrictions to the gospel. They're adding required abstinence from marriage, required abstinence from food. Isn't this interesting? You might have thought, wait a second, Eric, I thought Satan's strategy against the church was to promote lust and gluttony and excess. Uh, here, do you see the demonic strategy? It's to, it's to promote restraint. The demonic strategy is to restrict. 
The demonic strategy isn't about promoting indulgence in sex and indulgence in food and, and indulgence in the pleasures of the world. The, the, the demonic strategy is to promote rules and regulations that actually restrain from some of those things. The demonic teaching is promoting celibacy and it's promoting diet control. Again, Satan has more than one attack against the church. He's subtle. He wants to get in whatever way he can. And I want to show you how this subtle adding restrictions to the gospel actually undercuts the gospel. I want to show you this. Think with me. There's, there's three errors bound up with these false teachings. Here's our, our three sub-points to our first main point. The main point is Paul's got to identify the error. There's three there's three subpoints here, three errors that are bound up in the false teaching that's in, that, that is giving these restrictions. Here's the first error. There's a, a wrong view of God. It's a wrong view of God. I want you to think back with me in Genesis account. Think back with me in the creation. What does God do? He creates a good world, doesn't He? What is that refrain that's over and over in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? It was good. It was good. God created it. He saw it. And it's good. And he gives this good, good world filled with pleasures, filled with beauties, filled with delights. All of it he gives to Adam and Eve. He says, fill the whole earth. It's all yours. Go enjoy it. And he has one restriction. The one restriction that Adam and Eve are not supposed to enjoy is a fruit that, or a fruit tree that he's put right in the middle of the garden and that they are not supposed to eat of. And it is a reminder to Adam and Eve always that God is God and that they are not and that they will be blessed as they submit to Him. And what does Satan come along and do? Remember what he does? Chapter 3, the fall, serpent comes in. Listen to what he says. He goes, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Do you see how subtle that is? What, what did God actually say? Eat of all of them. They're all yours for your enjoyment except one. Eat of all of them and plant more and fill the whole earth and make this whole place a beautiful garden. It's a beautiful place of delights. Enjoy it. And Satan goes, what? Didn't God say you can't eat of any of these trees? And then he, he, he begins to even go a little farther in. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God is withholding a tree from you? How dare he? Uh, he he's, don't you want to be like him? Have the knowledge of good and evil? You could eat of this tree. Don't, God is, is holding back. Do you guys see the error? God is a withholder. God is a withholder. God is stingy. God doesn't want you to have the pleasures He's created in the world. That's the little lie that Satan's planted in Adam and Eve. Now come back with me to 1 Timothy 4. What is the lie? It's very similar, isn't it? The lie is this. If you are close to God, if you are near to God, He's going to want you to withhold from these physical delights of food and the physical joy of marriage. If you get close to God, if you really know God, if you really knew what He wanted of you, He doesn't want you to have a good marriage. He doesn't want you to enjoy certain foods. He, he doesn't want that. Do you, see, do you see the deception? It paints a wrong view of God. God is a withholder. 
And this is what Satan wants to infiltrate the church, and it's coming out in these restrictions, that if you knew God, you would know that he doesn't want you to enjoy certain physical delights. That's the satanic message. Friends, people inside the church and outside the church have bought this lie, that God is stingy, that God is not a giver, that God doesn't want to bless. And some people are refusing to come to God in obedience, in repentance, in faith, Because they're convinced that if they come to God, God will take away any joy, any pleasure, any delight that they might experience in their pursuit of the things of the world. You see that? They're resisting coming to God because they think coming to God will put them in a straitjacket. God doesn't want them to have any delights. Because that's what these people were teaching. If you know God, He doesn't want you to have certain pleasures like marriage and like food. He wants you to get your... just your, your mind in the mode of obeying regardless of what God might want for me. Unhappy submission, knowing that God, if I follow him, he's, he's kind of stingy. See, it's a wrong view of God. His second, it's a wrong view of creation. See, God created, it says, all things Good. But the false teaching, you unveil this, it's, it's a wrong view of creation. Now, I want you to feel the magnitude of this reality. Every waking moment, every waking moment, you are experiencing with your senses the physical creation that God has made. Think of this. God made angels. Angels don't have bodies. They don't have the same physical sensations we have. They're not material creatures. They're spirits. They're disembodied spirits. But God also did make embodied people, His creation of humanity is God creating physical creatures, putting them in a physical, material world in, with, with noses that smell, with ears that hear, with eyes that see, with a tongue that tastes, with hands that can feel in touch and eyes that can see. This is the God that, he, that, that has revealed Himself in the Word of God. And these are the people we are. We are creatures, physical, material creatures. And how you relate to the creation around you is a very important matter. What you see, what you can taste, and what you can touch, how should you respond to all these physical sensations that God has allowed us to have? And there have been people throughout the ages, and especially during the time of this writing, who have said that all those physical sensations are just bad. Spiritual is good. Anything spiritual is good. And anything physical is bad. This was the, this was the uh, first century belief. In fact, you read through uh, Colossians, the same heresy is going around that anything spiritual is good and anything physical is bad. They had a wrong view of creation. Maybe you've believed this. Anything spiritual is good, anything physical is bad. You've refrained from any kind of physical enjoyment of creation. It's a wrong view of creation. It's a wrong view of God. They thought he was stingy and that if you actually knew him, he'd withhold things from you. Some people see God that way. Uh, It's a wrong view of creation. Uh, Some people see the world as a bad world, a fallen world, a broken world, and therefore, since it's all those things, they make this conclusion that it is inherently evil and I need to be more spiritual than the world. I need to refrain from anything physical, refrain from any delights in the physical world. Now, here's a third wrong view, and this is where it comes to play even more. The the, the third error bound up in this restrictions is it was a wrong view of sanctification. A 
wrong view of sanctification. Sanctification is the doctrine of growing more holy, to be more like Christ. It's the truth that once we're in Christ, we are growing uh, step by step, little by little, become more Christ-like. Now, isn't it interesting that a wrong view of God leads to a wrong view of creation, which leads to a wrong view of how we grow in righteousness and how we grow closer to God and how we grow more Christ-like? You see, what was happening here, what was being taught, listen, they thought that if they were refraining from certain physical delights, they were more holy. Uh, if they refrain from certain foods, they're more godly. They refrain from the physical enjoyment of marriage. They're more holy. See, see this, maybe, maybe you can identify this if you were raised in a legalistic household. That the idea is this, that if you say no, if there's self-denial, if you're always making more restrictions, that is the measure of your own holiness. <laughs> That's the measure of how godly you are, is how many things you're saying no to. See, see, I want you to see the error here and how subtle it is. Sometimes Satan dupes people into rebellion by causing them to rebel against righteousness that God has revealed in His Word. But sometimes... Satan incites people to rebellion, not by causing them to rebel against righteousness, but to cause them to weave their own righteousness, to make up their own rules and follow them. See, here's what's happening. There's a subtle form of disobedience that can creep into your life, creep into the life of the church. And the thing about this, listen, is that it looks godly. The subtle form of disobedience is this. We make up rules and follow them and think that in following them we are becoming more godly. The subtle form of disobedience, we are obeying commands that God has not given. We are making up rules, we are obeying them, and we're calling it holiness and righteousness that's what's happening here. I'm not going to get married. God never commanded that. But they're thinking that that makes them more holy. I'm not going to eat these certain foods. God didn't command that. But they're thinking that makes them more righteous. That thinks that adds to their sanctification. Think about all the things we do today. I mean, I could think of a lot. And you could probably go talk to someone and think of more. What are the things that we do that are not commanded in Scripture that we give ourselves a little chuck plus because we've done that and we think we're acting more holy because we've done it? I don't watch that much TV. I never, I never eat any ice cream. <laughs> I don't drink coffee. The rest of us coffee drinkers go, that is sin to not drink coffee. <laughs> that was created by God and it is good isn't it true, though, that we can make up law and think that in keeping the laws we've made up, we are walking in obedience? See, here, the gospel, the gospel tells us that our righteousness is outside of us in Christ. It is a gift. It is credited to us. But it is His righteousness that gets us saved. It is the righteousness of Christ. Now that makes us very uncomfortable, doesn't it? 
that our righteousness is in the hands of someone else. And so what we try to do is manufacture our own. We want something tangible. We want something we can see. We want something we can show off. Look, I do this. I don't do this. I have done this. And that makes me godly because of those things. And that is an error that cuts right at the heart of the gospel. Because we are not righteous because of the things we do. And we are not righteous because of the things we don't do. We are righteous because Jesus has given us His righteousness. That's why. And by faith, when we trust Him, the righteousness is credited to us, to our account. And here we are trying to do things or not do things, trying to restrict ourselves from certain things that God has given. And we're doing that to say, see, no, look, look, I am righteous. Look at what I've done. Look at what I am doing. Look Look at what I say no to. I don't do this. Look, everyone else does this. And that's... That's actually rebellion. That's, re- that's rebellion. Because that stuff doesn't make us righteous. Self-denial can't make you godly. And yet how many people are filling churches? Perhaps this very morning, who imagine themselves to be following God's laws, but are actually only following manufactured rules that they've made up. See, the idea that we can become more holy by self-restrictions, self-denial, is called asceticism. The whole book of Colossians is against it. It's the idea if we restrict ourselves from physical delights that we're going to be made more godly. This is why people throughout history have become monks This is why the Roman Catholic Church has required celibacy with their priests. This is why mystics have locked themselves in rooms to just contemplate truth away from anything outside that might cause them to stumble. It's a false gospel. Because that's not how you become holy. That's not how you become righteous. That's not how you become godly. We're going to see how you become holy, righteous, and godly in what are the practical things you can do next week as we look at the or the two weeks from now when we look at the next uh, passage of what Paul tells Timothy to do. But just giving yourself restrictions never will make you godly. Colossians 2, 21. He's talking about these rules that people had made in the church. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Listen to what he says. Colossians 2, 21. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can make all the rules you want. You can say no to all the physical delights that this world has to offer. You can say no and uh, say, and you can convince yourself that in saying no to foods and physical delights is making you more righteous. And Paul would say these things have no value in actually changing the heart in actually stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, here's what's going on. I want you to see this. Underneath the restrictions, this is the, this is the message. This, these are the implications. It's like you're lifting up a rock and you go, oh, like all these gross creatures under there. You lift up the restrictions and you take a look what's going on underneath. Here's what's being taught in the church in Ephesus. God is stingy, creation is bad, and we become holy by denying ourselves the pleasures that God has given us in the world. God is stingy, creation is bad, and we become more holy simply by saying no to the things in the world. Listen, these are gospel issues, all of them. 
They get right to the heart of what God has done for sinners. God is stingy. Well, if God's stingy, why is he going to send his own son? Creation's bad. If creation's bad, Jesus certainly couldn't have become part of his creation in the incarnation. That gets right at the heart of the incarnation if creation's bad. We get holy by self-denial? Oh, well, good. If I can just do enough, say no to enough things, restrain myself from enough delights, I don't need Jesus, do I? You see, all of this is rendering the gospel unnecessary. All of this is saying that we can do it of ourselves. God is not going to be the one who gives it. Creation is bad. I just need to get away from it. And the way I grow is by getting as far away from the good gifts of creation as I can get. So Paul needs to correct this because underneath these restrictions, you might have come into the church and said, wow, these people are really serious about the Lord. They don't get married because they're serving the Lord and they don't eat certain foods because they're serving the Lord. And Paul looks at it and he goes, this is heresy. It's actually cutting right through what the gospel is intended to be. And so he corrects it. He gives us three corrections. Here are the corrections of this bad theology. Correction number one, God is a giver. God is a giver. Verse three, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods, listen to this, that God created to be received with thanksgiving. He created the world so that it would be received with thanksgiving. That it would be a gift to the people. It says, look at who it says. It was given to the people who would respond with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. God created this world to be a blessing to His people. In sin, most of the people don't recognize God as the giver of all these gifts. But who does? Who are the people who believe and know the truth? Who is it? Well, that's the church. That's Christians. That's us. What does this mean? This means that all creation is a gift to God's people. It was made for them. It was a gift overflowing for His people that they might enjoy it. This is good news. This is, this is good. I don't know if we talk about this enough. Do you understand that creation is a gift to you to enjoy? That the things that this world holds is a gift for you to experience delight in? Think about it. God didn't make everything in grayscale. What if he did? What if everything was monotone? What if all our voices were monotone all the time and this was the way we talked to one another all the time? What if there was no singing? What if there's no chords on the guitar or on the piano? What if there was none of that? What if everything was just bland? What if every meal we ate was just oatmeal? What if it was just tasteless? What if all the senses that God allowed us to have were restricted and all we could experience was the same thing again and again with no variety? Listen, God created the world as a gift because He's a giver. He didn't make it all gray. He didn't make it all bland. He made it beautiful. Glorious and wonderful. God invented the rainbow and the thunderclap and the lakes that you can jump into and enjoy and rivers and grassy fields. Have you been out and seen the California hillsides that are blooming with poppies? This is beautiful because it is God's good gift to who? To the people who recognize that it's coming from Him. They believe it. They know the truth. And they say, God did this stuff. We're allowed to enjoy creation. 
Jump in that lake. Hike in those mountains. Go play a sport. Run outside. Hunt. Sit at the beach. Listen to a symphony. God is not against the delights that this world can afford. Read a good book. Watch a good film. Get married. Enjoy your spouse. This is all good. God gives good gifts. This is good news. This is good news because everything you go out there and you can see is you go, this is my God is a part of this. My God made this. And who did he make it for? He made it for those who believe. That's me. He made it for people who know the truth. I, I know the truth. This is for us. This is the playground for the sons of God and for all eternity, even in the new heavens and the new earth. We will be enjoying the physical world that God has made. God is a giver. Creation is a gift. Isn't this amazing? And let's take this even further. God is a giver because God so loved the world that he what? He gave. So God not only gave creation to his people, he gave his son to his people. They were sinners who didn't deserve him at all rebelling against them. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 1 that we took that creation that God gave us and we worshiped it instead of worshiping him. And yet God, out of his amazing and abundant giving nature, his generosity, he entered into the creation in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, for the people who had sinned against him. He gave his son to be our sin bearer, to be the one that we could put all our sin on him we could confess all our sin and throw it at the cross and that He would pay for our sins. And then He gave His Son not only to do that, but also to be our righteousness so that by faith I trust Him in all the righteousness I could ever need before God is given to me through faith. Christ's righteousness becomes mine. What a giver. That not only all creation is for His children, but His very own Son is for His people. And that when you, by faith, listen, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, if you have not recognized the, the great generosity of God, that you have maybe thought that you become holy by restraint, by self-denial, by doing things, by becoming good, by being a good person, listen, the free gift is free. And that means you don't need to try to earn it anymore. It's a gift what you do is agree with God that you are a sinner, that you don't deserve it. You agree that you can't do anything to earn it. And you agree also that Jesus did it for you on your behalf and you trust him. Trust in Jesus, admitting that you have no hope in any other place. And he'll give you the gift of salvation so freely that you could rejoice this very moment if you receive it by faith. He gives it. Friends, this ought to make Christians happy people, right? Happy people. Because we are just surrounded by gifts. Gifts are everywhere. Gifts are all around us. God is a giver, and we enjoy the gifts that he has given. I remember reading somewhere. I, I was trying to find the source of this story, but I couldn't find it. Um, so I'll just tell it the way I remember it. But there were some it was an old godly man. He had lived as a leader in the church for many years, and he was kind of intimidating to some of the children who were part of the church. And one day the children all got together and they said, hey, go, go ask the old man if, it's, if, if you can still go to heaven if you dance. Go ask him if you can still go to heaven if you dance. And so one of the little children got brave and ran up to the old man and said, sir, 
Can people still go to heaven if they dance? And the old man who had been walking with Christ for many years replied, Son, I don't think, we'll, I don't think people will get to heaven unless they dance. His point, of course, is that Christians are the recipients of so many gifts. Not only the gift of salvation, but the gift of creation given to His people to enjoy. And this brings us to our second point of correction. Creation is good. Creation is good. First, God is a giver, and He doesn't give bad gifts. He gives good gifts. Creation is good. Verse 4, everything God created is good. Everything created by God is good. It doesn't make sense to get a gift that's a good gift from a good God who loves to give and to take that gift and say, you know what, I love you so much, but I'm just not even going to open it. I don't even want to look at it. No. He created it good. He gives good gifts. Everything in Genesis tells us it's a gift. It doesn't make sense, and it certainly doesn't make you more holy to refrain the gifts that God has given you in creation. You don't get any more holy by abstaining from certain foods. You don't get any more holy by saying, nope, I'm never going to get married. You may choose to do those things, and that's fine. That's a matter of Christian liberty. You might want to do those things. That's okay. But it doesn't necessarily increase your holiness. Good gifts. They're all good gifts in the world, even after the fall. It says all creation is good. Is, current, present tense. It is good. Though it groans, though it's broken, creation is a good gift. So that's the second point of correction. Now third, I want you, this, is, this is really where it gets practical. This is where our third point is practical. It says, our enjoyment of creation must be consecrated to God. God is a giver. He gives His creation to His people, to those who believe Him, who love Him, who trust Him. But we must enjoy the creation in a specific way. Our enjoyment of creation must be consecrated to God. Like I said, now you, you, you might have heard this. You might be hearing this and be thinking to yourself, man, what about moderation? What about temperance? What about avoiding indulgence? Eric, you're sitting here saying, that all creation is a gift and I'm allowed to just have it as, as much as I want? Well, I want to let the Word of God speak. Look at verse 4. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if... Okay, see the if? Conditions here. Say no to, no, don't, don't, don't say no to the, the creation gifts. If it is received with what? Thanksgiving. Verse 5, for it is made holy or it is set apart or it is consecrated by the Word of God and prayer. He gives us a way to enjoy creation. It's not just by indulging in it sinfully because you know in the Genesis 3 world, in a Romans 1 world, what are we prone to do with creation? We're prone to worship creation. We are prone to be idolaters. We are prone to enjoy it to the extent that we're enjoying it to the neglect of the things God has called us to do. We're prone to enjoy it so deeply that it becomes a substitute for who God is. That's what we're prone to do. And so there's a qualification for how we enjoy creation. 
And the, the qualification is we must receive it with thanksgiving, and it is consecrated to God by the Word in prayer. And so what he's saying is, that all your enjoyment of the physical creation ought to be, you ought to do it carefully, okay? There's some guidelines here. There's, there's a track for you to go on. If you're going to enjoy the physical creation, uh, there's some things you need to think about. First of all, you need to understand it biblically. The point is this, listen. Your enjoyment of the physical world ought to be worship. Your hike through the hills can be worship. Your enjoyment of a pickup game of basketball can be worship. Your enjoyment of a good cup of coffee, worship. But how? It's made holy. It's consecrated. It's made worship by the word and prayer. Three things to make things worship. Our enjoyment of creation, worship. Here's how we make our enjoyment of creation consecrated as worship to God. We must understand it biblically. It's consecrated by the Word of God. Did you see that? It's consecrated by the Word of God. It's made holy. It's set apart by the Word of God. That means whatever we are given as a created gift to us, we have to understand what the Bible says about that thing. Take marriage. What does the Bible say about marriage? It says it's a gift. It says it's to be enjoyed. It says it's between a man and a woman. It says once marriage is engaged, that it's meant to be lifelong. God hates divorce. This is how God intends marriage to be used. The sexual intimacy is to be expressed and enjoyed within marriage, but not without marriage, not outside of marriage. See, the Bible gives all kinds of directions for how to enjoy the marriage gift. In other words, if we are going to worship God in the way we enjoy His creation, we've got to know what the Bible says about that creation. Take food, the other thing they were having a problem with. What does the Bible say? God created food for our enjoyment. We're not under dietary laws like the Old Testament Israelites were. In the New Covenant, all foods are made clean. Peter had to get that three times to remind him that he can enjoy all foods now. And you can too. In Christ, we are able to biblically enjoy the created world. But we must understand this. We must understand this. We are also warned against gluttony in the Bible, aren't we? We're, we're warned against uh, just using so much of the created gifts that we forget about God. We're warned against that. So we understand what the Bible says about the created gift that's given to us. So we un- to make it worship, to make our enjoyment of creation worship, We have to understand it biblically. Second, we need to approach it prayerfully. It's consecrated by the Word of God and prayer. And so whatever we do in this creation, whether it's jumping in a lake or playing a sport or watching a film or reading a book or enjoying a date with your spouse, we approach it prayerfully. In other words, we're talking to God about this. We're we're saying, Lord, thank you for this stuff. We're saying, Lord, help me to remember that this came from you. We're coming to it prayerfully. And of course, we kind of already hit on it. The third way that we make our enjoyment of creation an act of worship, it says that we receive it with thanksgiving. We ought to be saying thanks all the time. 
Thanks for the flowers. Thanks for the beautiful mountains outside. Thanks for my family. Thanks for my spouse. Thanks for this meal. Lord, He has given us so many gifts, has He not? Uh, He has given us the gift of salvation. He has given us the gift of His Son, His perfect righteousness and forgiveness of sins. And on top of that, all creation is to be enjoyed by His people as we understand it biblically, as we approach it prayerfully, and we respond gratefully and thankfully say thank you for this God made it for us this is such freeing news you don't have to think that you're becoming more holy by saying no or by saying yes you can enjoy the creation as you look at it biblically as you approach it prayerfully and as you give God thanks you are allowed to enjoy it so go to a play and read that book and go hunting and go play that sport and go on a date All these things are good. Go sit on the beach. These are all gifts. But when you do, say thank you to God. Say thank you for this. God isn't stingy like these people thought that if you followed him, he'd want to take away delights from you. Creation isn't bad like they thought. It's good. It's created good. It's a good gift to his people. And it's not making you more holy to deny the gifts that God has given His people. You can receive those gifts with joy and with gratefulness as you pray back to God, thank you for these things. This is freeing. This is freeing because it means every moment of our lives as we walk through this created world, we can be worshiping God for the creation He's made. G.K. Chesterton, we'll finish with this, wrote a little poem that captures the essence of how to enjoy creation. He says, you say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and the pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in ink. And that should be our desire too. We say grace all the time as we enjoy this world. Why? Because it's all grace. It's all gifts of a generous God who loves His people. What do you think God is like? Is He stingy? Is He holding something back from you? You think if you lay down your life for Him that He's going to be wanting to withhold the lights and pleasures that this world has to afford? No. He's created this world for the enjoyment of the people who know and trust Him and everything could be consecrated to Him by the Word of God and prayer as we give Him thanks for the good gifts of creation. Let's pray. So Lord, thank You. Thank you that you are generous and that more than giving us salvation, you have given us the enjoyment of all the delights of creation. Lord, let us never exalt the creation above the Creator. Let us never love these things you've given us more than yourself, the gift above the giver. But Lord, we do pray that we would be able to enjoy the creation the way you intend us to that we would receive it with thanksgiving, that we would understand that it's worship to enjoy these things, that we would not be legalistic thinking that we become more holy by saying no. 
but that we would be filled with delight in you, worship of you as we live our daily lives before your face. So Lord, help us to see how generous you are. In Jesus' name, amen.